Good morning. Some accounts of the Battle of Yorktown from the American Revolution in October 1781 tell us that when the English General Charles Cornwallis surrendered his British troops to the Continental Army under George Washington, the army band played an English folk song entitled, The World Turned Upside Down. Only that dramatic title could provide a fitting soundtrack for the tumultuous event taking place that day, the first time that a collection of colonies fought and won their independence from the mighty British Empire. That song, The World Turned Upside Down, could likewise provide a fitting soundtrack to the work that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to accomplish. He wanted to flip the world upside down so God would be glorified, so God's people would be restored to their appointed place, and the nations of the world could finally attain everlasting joy. We believe that Jesus Christ is not merely one menu option on the buffet of world religion. He does not coexist alongside of Moses, Muhammad, or the Buddha as one possible pathway to God. No. Jesus is the only one whom God chose, to whom God gave his spirit, who was empowered to make everything right and to flip the world upside down. And Jesus did this by dying for sin once for all, doing the last thing that everyone expected, and then by rising from the dead to rule forever. Now, in the 8th century BC, the prophet named Isaiah, he wasn't told Jesus' name or the exact time and place where Jesus would do all these things, but that didn't stop Isaiah from writing about these earth-shattering events that Jesus would do. Isaiah wanted to prepare the world to recognize these things when they happened. And so in this morning's passage, Isaiah chapter 61, we'll see that the upside-down world of God's chosen one is where you'll find everlasting joy. The upside-down world of God's chosen one is where you'll find everlasting joy. As we work through the passage, we'll see this in three parts. The man who flips, the world that's flipped, and the God who blesses the flipping with everlasting joy. Let me pray, and then I'll read the first few verses. Our Father in heaven, please help us today to see Jesus, the one that Isaiah prepared us for, and help us to see the world turned upside down by this one who died and rose again, so we might have life and everlasting joy. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let's look at the man who flips. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, the main idea in these opening verses is that there is this guy who has been chosen by God. That's what it means to be anointed. He's been chosen by God to receive the spirit of God and accomplish the work of God in the world. Now, by this point in reading the book of Isaiah, we should be used to this. All through the book, we've come across this mysterious figure. In the opening section of the book, he was presented as a king, a son who would be born to us, who would rule from David's throne and establish peace forever. In the second part of the book, he was presented as a servant, dying for the sins of the people so he could shine like a light to the nations. And now in this third part of the book, we've already met him as the conquering warrior, And here in verse 1 of chapter 61, we are reminded that the spirit of Yahweh is upon him. This is one reason why we can link together the three figures, the, the king, the servant, and the conqueror from these three parts of the book. And we see that they are really one person because Isaiah said earlier about the servant in chapter 42, verse 1, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And even before that, in the first part of the book, he said this about the king in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see this figure at every turn in the book, part one, part two, part three, he's empowered by the spirit of Yahweh for his work. That's why he says the spirit of Yahweh is upon me in verse one. And what is that work here in chapter 61? What is it? That Yahweh has chosen him to do. He's anointed him to do. This work here is described with seven infinitive verbs. For those of you who hated your English class, the infinitive verbs are the ones with the word to. To bring. To bind up. Etc. And so there are these seven verbs that, that structure these three verses. And the last two of them really describe one thing, because the sixth one is interrupted mid-thought to complete it with the the seventh one. So we've, we've, we've really got six thoughts with these infinitive verbs, and they work in pairs, starting from the outside and working in. So we get three things that he is meant to do here. You can see in your outline. The first is that he brings good news to the poor. He brings good news to the poor. The first infinitive fits 
with the last two. So the first one is to bring good news to the poor. And then the last two in verse 3 are to grant and to give and all these things that he gives. He gives a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, etc. So the good news that he brings to the poor that this spirit-filled person brings is the reversal of their fortunes. It's that those who weep in ashes will be given a beautiful headdress, that those who mourn will be given the oil of gladness, those with a faint spirit will be given a garment of praise. The good news here is simply this, that your weeping will not last forever. That is the good news he brings to the poor. Your sorrow and your groaning will soon be done away with. Deep-seated joy is on its way. And you will be so firmly planted in this joy that verse 3 says, people will call you oaks of righteousness. The planting of Yahweh that he may be glorified. You will be firmly planted in the righteousness of your God. Just consider all the pain you have suffered. Some pain comes from our own dumb choices, where we choose anger and impatience and then find ourselves distant from others. Some pain comes from others toward us, where we try to just live our lives, but taxes are burdensome and we can't qualify for a loan and family members pass away. And there's yet other pain that comes from trying to serve the Lord where we don't advance in our career as quickly as others who are willing to compromise integrity. And our belief in Jesus Christ is not respected in the academy or in the community. The good news for you, wherever your pain is, however you feel poor in your pain, the good news is that this pain will not last forever. God's chosen one, the one that he has anointed, whom he has given his spirit, he will flip it all upside down and make it right once and for all. He brings good news to the poor. The second work of the man who flips is that he provides the intimacy we long for. We see this in the second pair, the second infinitive and the the next to last infinitive, to bind up the brokenhearted and to comfort all who mourn. In both of these clauses, Isaiah speaks of a surprising intimacy for a divinely appointed conqueror. He binds up the brokenhearted. He comforts all who mourn. This is not a warrior who fights with disregard for the collateral damage. Like the typical superhero movie where the explosions and the collisions in the fight are so violent that hundreds of innocent people end up dying just because of the presence of the fight. No, this is a warrior who fights with full regard for those for whom he is fighting. He lays down his sword and shield momentarily in order to check in on how you are doing. He cares about your broken heart and he wants to mend it and bind it up. He cares about what makes you sad. He wants to listen, to understand, to help you bear it, that you might find comfort. This is an intimacy unlike any other. And third, the third work of this man who flips, as we look at the two infinitives in the inside of the list, the third and fourth ones, his work is to pronounce justice. 
We see this at the end of verse 1, to proclaim liberty, and the start of verse 2, to proclaim favor and vengeance. When Isaiah says proclaim, here I don't think he's just talking about making announcements, like Steph coming up at the end of the service to tell us about the picnic afterward and what else is coming up. No, this is the type of proclamation that philosophers call a performative utterance. Which means that the proclamation itself speaks a reality into existence. This is what happens when a minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Or when a judge says, case dismissed. Or when an umpire says, take he out. In each case, The person speaking has the authority to make what they say to be the new and objective state of affairs. So is is it here. This spirit-filled man doesn't simply tell us about liberty. By proclaiming it, he makes it to be so for those who are captive. And he doesn't simply announce the possibility of God's favor. By declaring it, he makes it to be so. And he doesn't merely threaten the vengeance of God. When he speaks such vengeance, the case is closed. There is no more appeal. The point is that in all three areas here of this man's work, bringing good news, providing intimacy, pronouncing justice. He is flipping things upside down. Those who have been using their power to stay in power and to hold others down will end up going down themselves. And those who are down and out will be raised on high. Those who are on the outside will be brought to the inside. And those who think they are on the inside get shoved aside. You should know that when Jesus began his public ministry, one of the first things he did was teach in his hometown synagogue. And we read in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he found chapter 61, this passage, and he read this part of Isaiah's scroll and he declared to those people that this very day, this text was fulfilled before their eyes. They marveled at his audacity to claim such a thing. That spirit-filled man who will flip the world upside down, he is here and standing in front of you. They marveled at his audacity and then they tried to kill him for it. That very day. We need to understand what this world flipping looks like and why it was so offensive to his hometown people. And so Isaiah tells us in the next few verses about the world that's flipped. He describes what, it looks like, what the world looks like once it's been flipped like this. Let me read verses 4 to 7. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former dev- devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend to your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you 
shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. The first picture of the world being flipped is simply in verse 4, that the exiles will return from Babylon and rebuild their land. They'll build up the ancient ruins and raise up the former devastations. No longer will they be characterized by ruin and devastation. But they will be characterized by repair and relief. But there's more. In verses 5 and 6, we see something that we saw back in chapter 56, but we're reminded of it now, that this salvation for Israel was not only for Israel. Israel is here to serve as priests for the nations. They will remain the chosen people of God with a special role to play, but their role is for the good of the world and not for themselves alone. We're told that strangers will live among them as shepherds, as plowmen, and as vine dressers. You will eat, that is, you will benefit from the wealth of the nations. But in their glory, you shall boast. That line is key. He's telling Israel, you will thrive when the nations thrive. In their glory, you will boast. You intercede to God on their behalf like priests. You then take the message of his grace and glory and goodness out. And you will bring in a harvest of souls so they can be united with you as a people. Therefore, verse 7, your shame and dishonor transforms into a double portion. A double portion was the right of inheritance of the firstborn. If at, at that time, if you had three, if you died having three children, your, your estate would be divided up into four parts, and the firstborn would get two of them, and the other two each gets one. The firstborn gets the double portion. He's saying, you're, you're the firstborn, you get the double portion. Your shame and dishonor transforms into a double portion. And you get that double portion of the inheritance, verse 7, but God's inheritance is the nations of peoples whom he has created. And so you will receive them. You will inherit them. You will rejoice when they rejoice before their creator. This harvest of nations will give you everlasting joy, he says right at the end. Let me illustrate. I was given permission to share with you an email that one of my children sent me while I was away last week on a trip. This child said, Hi, Papa. Last night I was reading Romans 12. I would read one verse, then think about it. Do you remember the verse about outdoing each other? Well, to tell the truth, I haven't really been doing that, but I promise I'll try. And I can't tell you the joy I had to read of one of my children walking in the truth and loving the Lord and wanting to seek his ways. There is a joy to be had, no doubt, from accomplishing great things yourself. 
But there is a stratosphere of joy to be discovered when those whom you love start doing great things for the Lord. What is our application? Friends, please keep moving outward. That is the joy that God has for you. That is the pathway to everlasting joy. Keep moving outward. God has not saved you so that you can feel great about being saved. God has saved you as the first part of his plan to save the whole world. He has called you to be a walking parable of his mercy so that you can go out to win and welcome more strangers and foreigners. This is what he called Israel to do at the time of Isaiah, and this is what Jesus said he came to do. (coughs) And this is why Jesus' hometown tried to kill him that day after the synagogue service when he told them that this was fulfilled. They did not want this mercy of God to be extended to the surrounding nations. You can read about it in Luke 4. Luke makes that connection very explicit. So how can we at at Grace Fellowship Church keep moving outward? Let me give you five practical suggestions for moving outward in light of how Jesus has flipped the world. I don't expect everybody to be able to do all of these five things at the same time. But please consider how you can best honor the Lord in your current season of life. Idea number one, don't let any visitor escape without a greeting and a personal interest. Don't be weird about it. And let just one or two people talk to them at a time. But don't let anybody sneak out without, without them knowing that we care about them personally. Number two, consider meeting one new person this week. Just to fix your eyes outward. As simple as to meet one new person. You don't have to be supremely extroverted. Just trust that God is work and take the time to ask one person for their name this week. That would be an application of this. Number three, keep working, if you haven't done this already, to learn the names of all eight neighbors who happen to live around you. Find ways, find ways to connect with your neighbors. Begin getting to know them. Build relationships. Just think outward. Live life in an outward way. Number four, open your home. Consider opening your home. We live in a culture where people no longer just drop by to visit. We need to invite people over. And inviting church people over is a wonderful thing to do. But I also dare you to try inviting someone over who is not a Christian. You'll be amazed at how simple hospitality can open tremendous opportunities for the good news about Jesus Christ. And if you don't know anybody to invite over, go back to suggestion two and just meet one new person this week. Number five, love being with your kids. If you have children in the home, love being with them. Don't let any of these other things take over your life to the neglect of your family. You will not regret the investment you make in your children to show them the Lord in you throughout everyday life. And when you're with them, be all the way with them. I'm preaching to myself when I say this. Be all the way with them and not distracted by all the other things you you think you need to be doing. This kind of outward focus does not come naturally to most people. 
But this is simply what happens when the Spirit of God fills the man of God and he flips the world upside down. And so we need to remember that we are not the world flippers. We live in a world that's being flipped, but we are not the world flippers. This is the work of a God who is unlike any other God. And so Isaiah ends this poem with the God who blesses the flipping in verses 8 and 9. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. So we see here, and we have to get this, that All this world flipping was God's idea to begin with. He looked down and he saw all the deceit and all the wrong and all the injustice. And and those things offended him personally because verse 8 tells us he is a God who loves justice and who hates robbery and wrong. So he determined to reward every human person and every angel according to their deeds. He made an everlasting covenant with his people that they would multiply and advance. In verse 9, we're told their offspring would be known among the nations. And everyone who saw them would know that they are an offspring whom Yahweh has blessed. They will be known for their connection to him. To illustrate, I remember finding out when I was a student at Bucknell University that among our student body was the daughter of the owner of the Yingling Brewing Company. And when word about that spread around campus, she became a superstar. Everybody's hero because of who she was connected to, whose offspring she was. She became a celebrity. And Isaiah says, you know this, as you go out in the world, it will be something like that, only better. That you are the offspring that Yahweh has blessed. You see, God promised his blessing to his people on the day he created them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And he reiterated that promise even after they sinned the first time. And he told them that the deceived woman would have an offspring who would crush the head of the deceiving serpent, that ancient serpent whom we know as the devil and Satan. So when we join in God's newly flipped world and we refuse the false delights of the unflipped world that we try to live, we make it known to everyone that we are among that offspring. We are the Jesus people. He is the one who died so we could have life. He is the one who was filled with God's spirit. He is the one who brought good news and intimacy And he pronounced justice and he began to flip things around so that outsiders would be welcomed and insiders would be excluded. And we are his people when we look different from the world, when we reject the appeal of injustice, when we refuse to defraud people for personal gain, when we blast apart our instincts to have an ingrown community focused only on ourselves and we honor him. We are his people when we move out together to shine like lights in this dark world. Let me give you some closing application. Two applications 
for those who know this God who blesses the flipping of the world. Number one, seek joy in the world-flipping Lord. Seek joy in the world-flipping Lord and not in the unflipped world. In other words, the, the more you trust in Jesus Christ, the more you will become like him. And the more you see him flipping the world by welcoming the outcast and confronting the respected insider, the more joy you'll find in playing by his rules as he flips that world. You won't be able to describe the joy of knowing Christ, of having your sins forgiven, of seeing your children, your friends, and your co-workers grabbing hold of this world, uh, of the word of this life. But if you prefer to keep your world unflipped, you want to just keep your safety and keep to yourself, and you want to live in superficial harmony and financial padding, your joy will not last. You can give up these things voluntarily to follow Jesus Christ, or you can have them forcibly removed from you under great duress. So let me get more specific with my final application. Don't confuse positions of privilege for everlasting joy. Don't confuse positions of privilege for everlasting joy. You might have financial stability. You might have a relational capacity. You might have academic respect. These are all good things that we ought to leverage for the sake of Jesus Christ. But beware. We can gain a lot of benefit from these positions of privilege and yet miss the point of them. You see, having a strong retirement package and financial solvency is a great privilege but it can never match the everlasting joy that comes when you see the nations streaming in to worship King Jesus. And this challenges me greatly. You see, my dream world is one where Aaron and I sit together on the walk-around porch of a beach hut, wearing shades, sipping tea, playing board games, and watching the day go slowly by. I used to have an image on my desktop, of my computer, of a beachfront paradise to help me remember the good life and to help me with my daydreams. But, but this text tells me that the heights of joy are not achieved by the slow life, the stable life, the deeply introverted life. This text flips my expectations and it gives me a more glorious picture of what God is doing. I have never heard a person on their deathbed expressing regret for all the relationships they built with people who ended up coming to faith in Christ. You know, I wish I hadn't spent so much time and effort on all those people. There are other things I could have been doing. But friends, I have seen people on their deathbed who had every physical and financial opportunity who considered it worthless dung during their final days. So remember that God sent a man into the world to flip it upside down. And the world that Jesus Christ left behind was a world where the first are last and the last are first. And the first are those who seek the God who blesses this flipping of things. And so we honor him.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. And you've granted, granted us joy inexpressible and full of glory. O oh Lord, please save your people and bless your heritage that the nations might stream in. I pray that you would help us as a church to reach more people in this community. Grant more folks to understand this joy and this privilege of knowing you and of walking in you and with you forever. Please fill up our joy that we may boast in their glory of those that you bring in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.